in John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, we're going to begin reading in verse 20. And we're going to read down to verse 26. John 12, verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. John 12 is a record of things happening in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ just days before the Jews' Passover and days before His crucifixion. We saw last week that the events surrounding the resurrection of Lazarus led to many of the Jews leaving Judaism to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We also saw that those same events cemented in the hearts of the chief rulers their commitment to kill both Lazarus and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know of no record where the chief rulers were able to kill Lazarus, but we have a clear record in all four Gospels where they did lay hold on Jesus Christ and they did kill him. In this part of John chapter 12, we are introduced to some Greeks Greeks who were present in Jerusalem during the Jewish Passover. Our text gives us some insight as to the Lord's ministry among the Gentiles during his earthly ministry. And so verse 20 opens up, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Now, just for a reminder, in John 12, 19, the Pharisees had said among themselves that the world had gone after the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 12, verse 9, we learn that many of the common people among the Jews uh, were seeking, came seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 20 of that same chapter, we learn that among those who were seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a good number of Gentiles. Greeks, they're called here. These Greeks were God-fearing Gentiles who had been introduced to the one true and living God by the Jews who had lived among them. They understood by being taught in the Jewish synagogues that the Passover should be observed in Jerusalem. And so they had come to Jerusalem for that purpose. Their other mentions of Greeks in the book of Acts that follows after John. For instance, John 11, verse 19 and 20. John 11, 19 and 20. Now, 
they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, John eleven nineteen, I'm sorry, Acts 11, I said John, forgive me. Acts 11, verse 19 and 20. <clears throat> now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word of God to none but unto the Jews only. Verse 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Some preached to the Greeks. Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a, a synagogue of the Jews. Now remember the setting here. They're in Thessalonica preaching in a synagogue of the Jews. Verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, that is, went into the synagogue, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ, or Messiah, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that... This Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ, or Messiah. Verse 4. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and the chief women, not a few. I love the King James. Of the chief women, not a few. These Greeks, these Gentiles, mixed in with the Jews in Jerusalem, there for the Passover, wanted to see who Jesus Christ was, wanted to come to Him, wanted to speak to Him. And the Bible says they were in Jerusalem, back to John 12 now in verse 20, that they came up to Jerusalem to worship. The Greek word behind worship is a verb which means to kiss the hand or to bow the knee in reverence and adoration. They came to bow before the one true and living God. They came to worship the one true and living God. These Greeks had previously worshipped a multitude of idols. The Greeks had their idols just like the Romans did. They had a multitude of gods. Now they were being drawn to worship the one true and living God. According to the Jews' religion, they were not allowed to enter into the temple. Because they were Gentiles. They could only venture into what the Jews call the court of the Gentiles, which was located outside the temple area. In the Jews' religion, there was always, and is always, a division between Jew and Gentile. But these Greeks came to Jerusalem anyway, even knowing that the Closest they could get in the temple was in the court of the Gentiles. But in these Greeks, in these Gentiles, we see the beginning of the wall of separation being brought down between the Jew and Gentiles. Remember that Jesus Christ came to take that wall down and make Jew and Gentile one. In these Greeks, we see that despite the Jews' rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that God was beginning to work among the Gentiles and gather them in. The Jews as a nation were rejecting him. God was saving some among the Jews. But in these Greeks, we see now God is beginning to reach into the Gentiles and gather them in. In the Old Testament, we read of the Jews being separate from the Gentiles nations. You can't read the Old Testament without knowing that God separated the nation of Israel from all the rest and, and made a distinction between them. And they were always to be a separate people, separate from the Gentile nations. But in the New Testament, we read that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. They are both one in Christ Jesus. Part of the Old Testament thinking that I warned you against during the Sunday school hour has crept in to the New Testament in this way. If you still think of the world as being Jew and Gentile, as Jews being God's favored people, you don't properly understand the New Testament. Nor do you understand the work that Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary regarding the salvation of all sinners. God sent His only begotten Son into the world. Remember? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son into the world. That is, into the world of Jew and Gentile together. Remember when I preached in John chapter 3 that Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus when He made that statement. And how radical a statement that would have been in the ears of the Pharisee Nicodemus. To hear that God sent His Son into the world and not simply sent His Son into the nation of Israel. Remember when I was preaching on that? How radical that one statement is. But by God sending His Son into the world, He forever put away the Old Testament economy and the Old Testament way of thinking. He forever put away the idea that there is a, remains a division between Jew and Gentile. Let's look at four scriptures in the New Testament. First in the book of Romans. Romans 3 and verse 9. Romans 3 in verse 9, Paul is arguing, beginning at the middle part of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2 to the conclusion of chapter 3, that the whole world is guilty before God. And in Romans 3 and verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Paul is a Jew. And what he is saying here is this. What then? Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? What is his answer? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles in relation to how God views them? No. In no wise. For we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. When God looks at the world, he doesn't see Jew and Gentiles. He sees the world under sin. There is no difference. The Jews are not better than the Gentiles. By the way, I was taught that early in my Christian life. I was taught that in the first church that I was in. Romans chapter 10, Paul continues his arguments and his doctrinal exposition here in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, we read, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. 
There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, between the Jew and the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, and I might add, whether they are Jew or Gentile, shall be saved. Whosoever, because there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, so whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, and I mentioned earlier the Galatian error was this mixture of, yes, we need Jesus Christ as our Savior, but you also need circumcision, and don't forget to bring in the Old Testament economy into your church. And this is a great error, and it crept in early in the days of Christianity. In Galatians 3 and verse 28, Galatians 3 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul argues There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul argues here that in Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction between them. God does not view them as a Jewish Christian as opposed to a Gentile Christian. God views them as a Christian whether Jew or Gentile. And this is a strong argument from the Apostle Paul because the Judaizers have come to the churches of Galatia and they said, yes, you need Jesus Christ. They came out of the church of Jerusalem. We even believe in Jesus Christ, they would say. But you also need Moses. You must be circumcised, they would say. And there's this distinction being made. And Paul says it's wrong. There is no difference. There is neither Jew nor Gentile in the Lord's church, among the Lord's people. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3 is arguing from the perspective that God has given him an understanding of the plan of God, the overall plan of God from the beginning of time to the end. He argues that he understands this great mystery of the gospel in the, that in the mind of God, that from the beginning God has had this mystery that it was hidden in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in the New Testament. And what is part of this great mystery? Well, in Ephesians 3 and verse 6, Paul says and argues that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with whom? With the Jews. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promises in Christ by the gospel. That we Gentiles are not somehow in the outer court anymore, but now fellow heirs of the same body. Because we have all, Jew and Gentile, taken part in the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have in John chapter 12, as John introduces us now, to these Gentile believers, these Gentiles, proselytes of Jews, who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover to worship the one true and living God, but heard of Jesus Christ. Now they want to know who Jesus is. Now they inquire whether they could see him and get a meeting with him. Verse 21, the same therefore, the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh 
and, and telleth Andrew, and Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, Sir, we would see Jesus. What do they mean by that statement? Not to see him with their physical eyes, but because, because they could do that without coming to Philip and getting permission. All they got to do is stand on the side of the road, and here he goes by. They can see him physically. That's not what is being dealt with here. What they were asking, what they desired of Philip was that he would help them come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ so they might commune with him face to face. These Jews had been raised with idols that mocked them. I don't know if you have studied the Roman gods or the Greek gods. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I have studied them. You know, the Greek gods mocked the mortals. They scorned the mortals. They required of them to fix their life before they would give them audience. Uh, it was a mean group of gods, idols, that the Greeks worshipped. And then some of the Greeks, had come, Jews came around and established synagogues uh, in their area. And some of the Jews began teaching them of the true God. And so they left their Greek idols and came to embrace the true God in the synagogue. But the Jews also said it was necessary for them to be circumcised and to keep the law of God before God would approve of them. And they had become Jewish proselytes. They were in the synagogues. When Paul would preach, there would be Gentiles that would come and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. But they had joined the Jewish synagogues only to find they could not keep God's law. They could not obey all God's commands. They could not make themselves righteous by their obedience to what God had required of them. Now they're in a religion where they worship the one true and living God, but not according to truth. These Gentiles were among those in Jerusalem that had heard of the resurrection of Lazarus and had heard the Jews declare him to be from the Jews that he had declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. These Gentiles were also among those who had witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ ride into Jerusalem with that great multitude of people singing Hosanna to the highest. And they had been there and they had heard that. They had heard the Jews declare him to be the one who came in the name of the Lord. These Gentiles had seen or had heard that immediately upon entering Jerusalem, though not recorded in John's Gospel, but in Matthew's Gospel, immediately upon entering in Jerusalem with this great crowd of singing Hosanna, he goes into the temple and he drives out all those that are selling in the temple and declares, this is my father's house. All of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And they had been there and they had heard those words. What would they find if they were to meet face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, what do sinners find when they meet with Jesus Christ? These Gentiles 
would come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and they would find God manifest in the flesh. And they would find him not a God to be feared, but a God who could speak peace to the heart and to the soul, to the worst of sinners. They would find him ready to save the lost and to forgive the worst of sinners of the worst of sins. They would find a God who received, gladly received sinners as they were. Not waiting for them to make themselves better or do something to gain his approval. But they would be received as they were in their worst condition. They would find a God who was always accessible. And who never turned a deaf ear to sinners in need of a savior or to his own children who had gone astray. They would find a God who was the way, the truth, and the life regarding salvation because of his commitment. His face was set to Calvary's cross. He had set himself on this course and it's within a few days that he will go to the cross. And they will find a God who is the way, the truth, of the lie, and the life because he is going to pay for the sins of sinners on Calvary's cross. Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to meet him face to face. We heard that he's God. And we want to find out what kind of God is he. We know about the Greek gods. We know about the Jewish God. But who is Jesus, sirs? We want to see Jesus. And so they go to Andrew, and I mean Philip, and then and, and they go to, Philip goes to Andrew. And Philip and Andrew come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 23, we read these words. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus answered them. Them who? Hmm? Andrew and Philip? Or Philip, Andrew, and the Greeks? This is one of those texts within the Gospel of John where the commentators are all over the place. They can't agree with themselves. And with their disagreement among themselves, they have a, a lot of conjecture. Jesus answered them. I believe the context, the context persuades me that our Lord answered the request of these Gentiles to see him. He gives them the gospel, the, the fruit of true Christianity in his answer. Why would I believe that? Well, there's nothing in all of the Gospel of John up to this point that indicates to me that Jesus Christ is a God who turns away sinners when they come seeking Him. He is not a God also that leaves the ignorant in their ignorance when they are seeking to know the truth. Sirs, we want to know something about who Jesus is. It is inconceivable to me that he would have simply spoken the words following in verse 24 of 23 through 26 only to Andrew and Philip. 
these Greeks, these Gentiles want to see Christ. They want to know who he is. They have, they're ignorant of who God is and they want to know the truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony of scriptures concerning him, does not leave us someone who is ignorant in their ignorance. My own testimony bears witness of that. When I learned that Catholicism was wrong and we learned that Mormonism was wrong and we prayed, Lord, we know what is wrong, but we do not know what is true. Will you teach us what is true? And within a year, God had saved me and brought me to the one who is the life, the way, the truth, and the life. He is close to offering himself as the one and only sacrifice that will be acceptable to his Father for both Jew and Gentiles to be saved from their sins. Why would he reject these Gentiles? He is ushering in the times of the Gentiles. On his death at Calvary's cross as he ushers in and the the veil in the temple is rent. And a few years later, the temple is destroyed by the Roman army. At Calvary's cross, the times of the Gentiles is being ushered in. Why would he turn away these Gentiles? These before him are only a foretaste of what he's going to be doing in saving Gentiles throughout the whole world. And so they are there, I believe, Philip and Andrew and these Greeks... And they want to see him. And he opens his mouth. And he says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And you say to yourself, Brother Pat, what, <laughs> what does that have to do with what they're seeking? Well, it, it has everything to do with what they're seeking. And I think they understood it. But we have a hard time understanding it. The hour is come. You remember how many times he said, my hour has not come, but now it's here. The hour of his death, the hour of the time at Calvary has come. His answer to his Jewish disciples and to these Greeks, these Gentiles who would follow him is the same. His death upon Calvary's cross will make a way for both Jew and Gentiles to be accepted with God. That is going to be a glorious work. And that glorious work accomplished by Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross would not only bring glory to the Son of God, but it would bring glory to the Father. Now the Father's anger is turned away from sinners, and now Jew and Gentile sinners can come to the Father. And it would be a means of, by which sinners, both Jew and Gentile, may be glorified before God as God forgives their sins justifies them and sanctifies them and when they die they are glorified before the Father. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The glorification spoken of in this passage will be revealed first in the Lord Jesus Christ and then in His Father and then in His believers. It will be revealed when His labors and His sufferings are over. It is manifest in his death, burial, and resurrection. He, just, he didn't only die and was buried, but he rose from the grave when he offered himself to his Father as a perfect sacrifice to bring glory to himself and to his Father. His exaltation 
above all others when he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, exalted above all, given a name that is above every name, and enthroned upon the throne of heaven. And when the angels sing, and when the Father speaks of him, he speaks of him as being exalted in glory. When he and his Father rested because of the one great sacrifice that he made on behalf of sinners. And no more is the anger of God towards sinners, and no more is the sinner turned away because of his sin. Now through Christ they come and they're received. And their sinners are, sins are forgiven. And they're being made children and adopted into the very family of God. When he and his father sent the Spirit of God to apply his work of salvation upon all those for whom he died, Jesus was glorified. When God saves a sinner and he's been saving them, Jesus is glorified because all the focus of the sinner's heart is upon one great Savior, Jesus Christ alone. And in that, Jesus is glorified. They do not look at their baptism. They do not look at their denomination. They don't look at those things and thank God for being a Christian. They look at Christ alone and thank God for being a Christian. They see what Jesus Christ has done and testify, look what he has done to save me from my sins. And he is glorified in that. They don't exalt their baptism. They don't exalt their denomination. They exalt Jesus Christ as the one Savior of sinners. In all these things, he is glorified. He is glorified at Calvary and he has been glorified from the... Calvary until now and he shall be glorified until the end of time and in heaven when all the saints are gathered around the throne and the king is revealed as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world heaven will resound to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ heaven is about who Jesus is the gospel is about who Jesus is the scriptures focus upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the heart of a child of God is centered upon Jesus Christ. These words, properly understood by the Gentiles, would have given them hope. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Properly understood, they would have known. The hour has come for me to pay for the sins of my people. And that would have given them hope. But there is more in our Lord's answer to these Gentiles. In the following three verses, our Lord explains true salvation brings a life-changing result in the life of those who believe the gospel message, in the life of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the following words... Verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then in verse 24 and 25 and 26, he opens up and reveals true Christianity to them. Remember, they had been under the false message of their idols. They had been under the message of Old Testament works for salvation. Now they have come to Christ. 
and he opens up for them what true Christianity is. He says in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. He is dealing with them about eternal life. In the following three verses, I just read two of them. We'll come to the third one in a moment. Our Lord opens up what salvation is going to do in their lives when they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. He's teaching them that true salvation changes their life. It produces something. It produces a life defined by dying to yourself so that you might live for the Lord Jesus Christ. True salvation changes the heart so now that Christ is the sum and substance of what is in your heart regarding salvation. And your life has been changed by Him. It doesn't leave the person the same as He was. It changes Him. It's defined as a life of hating how the world defines what life is so that you can go on living uh, your life any way you want to. It doesn't define salvation in that way. It doesn't define salvation. Yes, you can have Jesus as your Savior and live any way you want to. It's okay. You know, it's all right. You got Jesus as your Savior. No. When you have Jesus as your Savior, something happens that radically defines, changes you. Your life begins to be focused upon God and His way of life. You live your life by how God defines what life is. Not by how the world does. You begin to be interested in what God has to say about living. I lived this way before. I saw what this way brought into my life. I saw that. I saw that and because I saw that I turned from it. I repented and I believed on Jesus Christ. And I don't want that anymore. But I don't know what is out in front of me. And Jesus Christ says, your life is changed now. And what is out in front of you is that this old life is going to be put to death. So that a new life can show up. Our Lord teaches that true salvation defines life as dying to yourself so that you might live for Him. We don't fully understand these things in the beginning days when God saves us, but as we begin to grow in grace and knowledge, these things begin to show up in our life. We begin to look at our life differently than what it was before. It is a life defined as hating that which is in the past, and desiring to know what is out there for me. God's salvation results in a life lived. Serving and following the Lord Jesus Christ. A life that seeks God's honor. And not the honor of the world. Something happened to me when God saved me. I, I was at home reading the scriptures. I, I wasn't being taught. I didn't have any Christian literature in my house. I had the word of God. And when 
When God saved me, I, I knew some things. I, I wasn't afraid anymore. I used to cry myself to sleep at night because I was afraid that I would die and go to hell. I knew I deserved hell. And I knew there was nothing I could do to escape it. And then I, I realized there's a peace here that I didn't have before. And then I knew something sort of intuitively. I wasn't taught it, but I knew I can't be that way anymore. Now, uh, hey, I, I wasn't a perfect specimen of the perfect Christian here, okay? But something inside of me said, you know what, I can't be that anymore. And I don't know what's out here, but I know this is not what it is. And so, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. These are, this is an agrarian society. Everyone he's talking to knows what that means. It means when that ground is plowed and you put that seed in, that that seed changes and a plant comes up. And when that plant comes up, it has a lot of fruit on it. Not just one seed. And they all knew what was going on there. They all understood that now your life is going to be like a seed planted in the ground. And it's going to bring forth something. It's going to change. All man-made religion is put away in this one truth. True Christianity is revealed in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is this. He died so that others may have life. He died so others may have life. The heart of true Christianity is best described as a life of self-sacrifice. You don't understand it. I didn't in the early days, in the first weeks and months of being a Christian. But before long, it began to be revealed to me. God began to teach me. Your life's going to be different. I didn't know I was going to be in a ministry. In fact, when people said, Brother Pat, you ought to be in the ministry. I said, no, 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 that's for somebody else. I'll just earn money and give it. I want to give money to missions. I didn't know I was going to be a missionary. <laughs> if you'd asked me in those days, do you think you ought to be? I would have said, no, 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 that's for somebody else. I'm not qualified. I'll just work and help somebody else. Christianity is, is described as living your life for the sake of others rather than focusing your life selfishly upon yourself. That, that's what got you into this because you focused on what I want and what I, and I want it now and, you just, and sin just unfolded before you. And whatever it was, you just went after it. And it didn't make any difference about your parents and it didn't make any difference about your neighbor. It didn't make any difference. It just, this is what I want. And then God saved you. And you, you looked up one day and you looked at that and you said, No. And you begin to learn how to die to yourself. 
to put to death that self-centered life that you now realize what it is. You put it to death, that self-centered life, so that you live for the Lord Jesus Christ and you become fruitful in His kingdom. Every Christian is fruitful in the kingdom of God. You say, Brother Pat, I don't see, see any fruit in my life. Well, uh, you need to look at it from God's perspective. I remember we had an elderly lady in our church when I was 25. 25 or 26. No, when I was 29 or 30. 79 or 80. 29 or 30. I was the oldest. She was the next. I was the next oldest. She was the oldest. She was in her 50s. The rest of us were below that, below me, below 30. Young church, a lot of young people in those days. And I'd spent two years just, just helping her to understand. And she, and she finally saw some of the air that she was in. And she came and she, and in the last day, and she would take a walk. Every, she had 19 surgeries, this lady, when I knew her. On her 20th surgery, she died. But in, anyway, she had 19 surgeries. And she walked with a cane. And when she became a Christian, her, 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 her husband of 35 years left her. Left her. This lady uh, who, who walked with a cane. And she would go out walking. And she would pass out tracks. And she was crying one day and said, I, I have wasted my life. I don't think I'm profitable at all. And I said, we called her Mom Cannon. And the kids called her Grandma, Grandma Cannon. Mom called her Mom Cannon. I said, Mom, you have no idea how blessed we are from having you in our presence. You have no idea how many lives you have touched with your kindness and with your love. She was fruitful, didn't even know it. Every true Christian can be compared to a single grain of wheat Our Lord is speaking of Himself falling to the ground and dying so that fruit may come. Souls could be saved. But it is also applying to us, every true Christian, every one of us in this room that's a Christian. We're a single grain of wheat. What good is a single grain of wheat? I mean, if you were hungry, you couldn't do anything with a single grain of wheat. Chew on it and what? What have you got? What can one grain of wheat do to help anybody? But as a single grain of wheat, we are useless. But if we die to ourselves... We yield our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ to do with as He chooses. Then we soon realize how fruitful we become for others. A man who seeks his own life first, the one who is self-centered will lose his life. The whole world is a testimony to that. The whole world is pursuing death. Why would you pursue death when Jesus Christ is life? What a waste of life to pursue death. 
But the child of God who seeks first the kingdom of God will not only find that all of his needs are met, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Not only will he find that all his needs will be met, but that along the way many others are helped in the cause of God in truth. Let me give you four examples. The biblical laws governing Christian marriage require a life of dying to self. Of giving up yourself for another. Husbands, how can we love our wife as Christ loved the church if we do not die to ourselves for the sake of our wife? Wives, how can you be the help God has ordained you to be if you do not die to yourself first to be a help? What about the biblical? Laws regarding being a parent. That too requires a life of dying to ourselves, of giving up ourselves for our children. Parents, you can fulfill God's will regarding being a parent only if you learn to die to yourself first. If you are selfless, you will think of your children. You will work for them. You will pray for them. You will teach them the things of God. And you will give your life so that they might understand things that they don't understand today. Every parent that is a Christian knows what that means. How can I be a pastor if I live a self-centered life? How can I teach you or preach to you if I think only of myself and not of what our Lord would have for his church? If I don't submit myself to him, Lord, what is it you would have me do? How can we function as members of a local church if we are forever thinking of ourselves alone? It's my needs that I'm interested in. It's my ideas. It's my preferences that I'm interested in. How can we love one another, serve one another, reach the lost, take the gospel into the whole world if all we do is think of ourselves first? We can't. We won't be able to. And so this teaching of Christ here to these Gentiles is critical. This is what Christianity is. You know what your old life is all. Now I'm giving you a new life. What your new life is going to look like is going to be a grain that falls in the ground and dies. And when it grows up, it's going to bring forth much fruit. People's lives are going to be affected by you. People's lives are going to be changed because you live for Christ. And then he says, if any man serve me, let him follow me, that where I am there shall my, also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. In these words, our Lord is teaching his disciples and the Gentiles who, who came to him seeking for truth as to who God is and what true religion is. He's teaching these people true Christianity turns a self-centered sinner into a willing servant yoked 
to Jesus Christ. Matthew addresses this. Our Lord said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest to your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Take my yoke in receiving Christ as my Savior. I also receive him as my Lord. We are yoked together, he and I. And he is the elder, and I am the younger, and he is teaching me and showing me the way that I should go. I used the example in India where uh, we were on this six-lane highway uh, going to the airport, and I was watching on the side of the road where there's grass this way, and on six lanes later, and there's grass this way, and this farmer is, is, is tending his oxen, two oxen yoked together. There's an older, bigger one and a younger one here. And the younger one is doing this number and he's pulling to go across six lanes of cars to get to the grass over there. And the younger one, older one, we go, this is the way we need to be going. And I watched that as we traveled. And I thank the Lord that I was yoked to him. Because my head goes this way, right? And Christ says, this is the way you need to go. Serve me. Serve me. Focus upon me. Follow me. You followed your own way. You did that. But now... I've put a new heart in you, and I've given you a new life. And that life is going to show up is following and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn to follow the Lord according to His pattern of life. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable to His death. I want to know Him. Because that's what Christianity is. It's about Christ. Well, what do you want to know? I want to know something about the power of the resurrection. I do. But I also want to know something about the suffering Savior. And I want to know something about being conformed to His death. I want to serve Him. But how do I serve Him? I remember His words in Mark chapter 9 and verse 35 when He said to His disciples... This is the way a man will serve me. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. This is how it is in the kingdom of God. This is what you need to learn. And remember, I've taught you that the disciples did not understand until after the resurrection. But they learned what it meant to be a servant. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Learn how to be a servant. They desire to be where the Lord is, these new Christians. They desire the spiritual presence of their Lord and Savior. They desire to be with Him, to walk with Him, to commune with Him, to learn of Him from the Word of God. They, they want to learn of Him under the preaching of the Word of God. They want to see Him. Sir, we would see Jesus. And when they see Him, that's what they want to be like. 
Sir, we would see Jesus. And this is what he said. This is, this is what it is to see me. It is dying to yourself. It is a, 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 a grain of wheat falling and dying and growing up and being fruitful. It is serving me. It's following me. We seek to, to be where he is. In our worship. In our service. And in the end. In heaven, because that's where he's at. And something in our heart sort of pulls us in that direction, doesn't it? We live in a world, and we, and we must live in this world. But something inside sort of longs for the day that we could be with him. In heaven. And that day's coming. Sooner for some than for others. It's coming. And for the child of God, it's anticipation. <laughs> I'm finally going to get to see Him face to face. Like these Gentiles did. And I'm finally going to get to tell Him how much I appreciate what He's done for my soul. And how thankful I am that He didn't leave me in darkness. But brought me out of darkness into light. And I've told him on this side a thousand times, but face to face is different. Sir, we would see Jesus. Well, come then and see him and listen to what he has to say. But he's going to speak the truth to you. And you embrace that. You have life everlasting. Let's pray.